We were very cagey about this visit because it seemed like there was an unusually high level of things that could go wrong. <laughs> so if we seem last minute, it's not that we're last minute, it's that we just didn't tell you we were coming. In Hebrews 12:11, it says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. So this particular verse refers to the idea that God as a good father disciplines his children, but I'm going to broaden it beyond the idea of discipline and suggest to you that hard times generally don't necessarily teach us anything. Just because something is hard doesn't mean that you're going to learn from it. So we've lived, uh, Dave and I and indeed our children, have lived amongst the persecuted church. We've lived in some of the poorest parts of the world. And I can tell you that the difficulty of circumstances can produce at the same time people who radiate glorious joy and also people who struggle with great bitterness. That extreme poverty can make somebody incredibly generous or really mean. So there's no guaranteed outcome. It says here that it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So we have to actively cooperate with a learning experience by the grace of God. God will not force upon you a compulsory software update whilst you sleep. This happens to me really often because I'm very bad at switching off computers. I don't know if you can relate to this, but I always have something else to do. Do you know what I mean? When I stand up from my computer, it's not in an idle kind of, let us see what else the day could bring for it, forth. It's in a, oh goodness me, is that the time I need to do whatever. So I never save a document. Why would you? That would be an extra click. And I never, ever respond to those update alerts. Yeah? So I frequently wake up in the morning and find my computer has been taken over by an alien, it seems, who closed all my documents. And I find it very annoying. I can promise you that the Holy Spirit does not work like that. There will never be a time when you will wake up in the morning having been transformed against your will. He asks us to be trained by what we go through. And the promise is that we can have a harvest of righteousness and peace. I include the therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees to encourage us because this is open to everybody. This isn't just open to people who feel up to it or are recognized by other people as being on a, on a great track of growth. It's available to all of us, uh, particularly the feeble armed and the weak need. So I want to suggest that if we recognize that difficult things have happened and are happening to us, that there is available to us a huge harvest of righteousness in this time, a huge harvest and growth in peace, but only if we will work at it and allow it. One of the things that the pandemic took away from us all, but one I personally felt, is that it disrupted my sense of the future. So it took away all my plans. And I'm a woman who loves a plan. I am somebody who will buy at least one calendar and a physical diary every Christmas and genuinely look forward to writing in them. Yeah? I now set alarms on my phone. Yeah? So I can have digital, I can have little tootly reminders to do the things in my diary. I love a future plan. 
And it was very, very disruptive to me personally. I found it incredibly hard to have them all taken away from me. It's still a bit dodgy, isn't it? The night before we flew, we ate pizza. And despite the fact that we are hungry people, we didn't finish it all. And there were three pizza slices left. And I felt so uncertain of that flight that I put them in the fridge. And I thought to myself, if we don't get on that plane and I come back and I've thrown them in the bin, I'm going to be really annoyed. Yes? So now we will have one month old pizza slices when we get back. But that's how tentative it felt to me to get on a plane. That I felt confused and disrupted by what I should do with my leftover pizza. I think that you've had your own leftover pizza experiences over and over and over again. And I realized that huge numbers about what decisions about what I do today are actually based on my future plans. The speed at which I do things is dictated by what's coming next. I accelerate when I have a deadline or I have a sense that I need to finish this before. Well, if you take away all my before's, I go real slow all of a sudden. I find that I will do things I don't want to do more willingly because I've got something good coming up. I'm a very reward-orientated person, too. I used, I end, I find, I've discovered about myself that I end nearly all emails with a future-orientated sentence, which meant in the early days of the pandemic, I just didn't write any anymore because I couldn't finish them. What do you say at the end? What is your reason for finishing, right? You've written paragraph number one, which is roughly, thanks ever so much for getting in touch, or it's been a long time, or something like that. Then you do a little newsy bit, yeah? Then you do the point. Then you have to end. Well, I, well, I always say, look forward to seeing you, or I'll be doing it. And, and I had nothing to end with, and I found that I had loads and loads of draft emails, incomplete and not sent, because I had no future event to end my email with. So given that we have a learning opportunity forced upon us about how we relate to the idea of tomorrow, I thought that that would be an interesting subject to look at, one that I need. So if I'm saying anything this evening, it's because it's something that's working me, that I'm asking me questions about, as my diary now has words in it written beyond tomorrow, written into the future, how can I rethink my attitude to tomorrow and get that harvest of righteousness and peace that's available if I'm prepared to be trained. So my questioning, I started with Jesus's most explicit teachings and I just want to say something about that. That that doesn't always with every topic seem like the most obvious thing to do, the scripture that leaps to mind. But I think it's a very, very important principle that whenever you approach a question, you restart Sorry, you start by re-looking at what, what Jesus actually said about it. Because if I hadn't done that, I definitely wouldn't have discovered this. Because what he said really surprised me. And yet it's really obvious and predictable. There you go. He said, don't worry about it. That wasn't, a, you all knew I was going to do that, didn't you? You all know that Jesus said that. And there it is in Matthew 6, an incredibly familiar passage. He says, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. These verses hugely suffer from over-familiarity. 
and being made, at least a section of them, that last bit, each day has enough trouble of its own, does not make it onto fridge magnets. But the earlier stuff does, but that bit doesn't. They suffer from overfamiliarity, which is odd, because that last little bit isn't encouraging at all, is it? Is it? It says each day has enough trouble of its own. That isn't encouraging. That isn't actually a basis for not worrying, is it? Isn't that more worrying? Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself, which is a singularly unhelpful idea. We looked it up in lots of languages. We looked up commentaries. We looked up in Dave's clever book that tells you how to translate the Bible into other languages and found nothing to help us understand that statement. Okay, sorry about that. Really thought I'd come out with a pithy little comment. Just want to tell you I don't have one. Being told not to worry can be really unhelpful. Yeah? My personal bugbear is the sentence, there's nothing you can do about it, so don't worry. That is why I'm worried. I am worried because there is nothing I can do about it. My helplessness in the face of this important thing is precisely the cause of my worry. So turning it round and, and just saying it to me as an instruction doesn't help. I don't move on from worry. I feel worse. Being told not to worry can be really hurtful. Because you can think, well, you clearly don't understand anything I've just said if you don't think that's worrying. So this is Jesus speaking. And because it's Jesus speaking, we will give it absolutely all our due consideration. We start with these words, even though if they were said to me by anybody else, I would feel inclined to dismiss them. Jesus clearly says, us, don't, says to us, don't worry about tomorrow. Now, this is what did help me. The IVP commentary takes the whole of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and gives it the title, Ethics of the Kingdom. Ethics of the Kingdom. And sometimes when you're looking at a verse that isn't kind of working and you can't find a way to think about it that actually is helpful, you can step back and say, well, it's one sentence in a paragraph. And in this particular circumstance, that paragraph is part of a long series of paragraphs and kind of keep going out until the perspective helps you. And when I did that, I realized that Jesus is giving us a set of teaching here, which is about how to choose to live well. These are instructions about how to decide, how to choose, not how to feel, but how to choose, to choose well. And this particular bit is about how to relate to possessions and material wealth. And here we're in a therefore bit, so we have to think about what comes before. And Jesus is running through a series of eye-openers talking about daily needs and encouraging the disciples not to prioritize material wealth, not to love it. He's reassuring them that the Heavenly Father knows what they need. He cares for the whole of creation. He says, therefore, get yourself rightly related to stuff and you will be less worried about tomorrow. And that felt quite doable for me. This is 
Jesus's instruction to us is if we make choices and decisions to be rightly aligned to the things of this world that we choose to prioritize above material wealth, his kingdom, then we will be less worried about tomorrow. I want to link that to a story he tells, a parable, which would be about a a plan for tomorrow that goes very badly wrong, otherwise known as the parable of the rich fool, in which Jesus said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves and is not rich towards God. Now, now clearly, that parable is speaking about generosity, it's speaking about priority, but it's, it's using a money story and a money story that has a strong tomorrow element in it. So I'm going to link them together. And it speaks to the idea that believing wealth would make us secure for our future. In conjunction with the previous passage, it links the idea that a poor attitude to material wealth gives you a distorted attitude to your future. And then in the book of James, James, Jesus' brother, I always think of this as a very intimate letter, the letter of James. I think about my uh, experience of bringing up boys who are therefore brothers and how well they know each other. I think about my own brother and then read this story, the one that, that, sorry, this letter that doesn't actually mention Jesus by name. And James said, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city and spend a year and carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. For the third time, I'm finding a link between an unhelpful attitude to the future and a desire to accumulate and put trust in material wealth. So I'm going to suggest that if we will embrace kingdom values about wealth, and I'm going to broaden wealth. I don't just actually mean cash and stuff. I mean social standing. I mean worldly success. I mean pride. That whole package of what doing well looks like in our culture, if we will put that to one side and choose his kingdom and his ways above that as a priority, as a decision of our wills, that we will find we worry less about tomorrow. When Jesus says don't worry about tomorrow, he is not being dismissive or saying don't think about it. When I looked at Jesus' attitude to his own tomorrow, when I read over the story of the narrative of the Gospels, Jesus is actually very future events orientated. He talked about future events to his disciples many, many times. A lot of them were those short-term ones where he talks about how to get a donkey to go into Jerusalem, or he does the Last Supper room arrangements. He predicts um, Peter's denial of him. 
And, and many of them are actually completed in the arc of the narrative of the Gospels. They're all things that were future for Jesus when he said them, but they're finished and complete. Yeah? So it's not that Jesus was saying, don't worry about the future, don't think about it, because he clearly did. And in our reading, we've had the future events that are not complete in the space of the gospel story. First of all, the destruction of the temple, and second of all, his second coming. Destruction of the temple has happened, his second coming hasn't, so we're in between the two. Yeah? We okay with that? And our reading, I actually, I could have asked for the whole of, of Matthew 24, because the entire chapter speaks about this, but I chose two sections. And my first comment I want to make about Jesus' teaching on the second coming is that there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it. That reading didn't feel short, but we actually skipped a huge bit in the middle. There's a lot of detail, and it was clearly something that he wanted to pass on to his disciples a huge amount of material about. So, if Jesus spends a lot of time talking about something, we're safe to say that it's of great value to him. Yeah? And I wonder if we have in any way the same amount of interest in Jesus' second coming as Jesus did. We would do well to reflect the proportion of our thinking, uh, talking, praying, spiritual energy time, to reflect the proportions that Jesus did. We give a lot of emphasis to some things that he hardly mentions, and I would like to suggest on this one we don't give a lot of energy to it, and yet it was clearly central to him. And it's bigger than that because actually a vast amount of the New Testament deals with the second coming of Jesus, and chunks of Old Testament have got that prophetic element. So why don't we? Why don't we spend time thinking about it? I think it might be because it's been hijacked a little bit, that it's become a bit, it's, it's, a, it's picked up a lot of baggage, the second coming of Jesus. It's something that people can argue about. I did grow up through a, a, a time where people tried to draw those timelines, like in some kind of history lesson, yeah, with the different events plotted on it, and then argued about them. I think it's also because when we read it, it's quite obtuse and unappealing. A lot of it's spoken about in very figurative terms that mean nothing to us, and actually don't really look that nice or fun. And we'd much rather think about other bits than that bit. But none of those are actually good reasons to be sidetracked from considering the second coming of Jesus. In fact, I think there might be a strategy to steal from us what we would get if we thought about it. In 2 Peter 3, we are instructed to look forward to the day of God and speed or hasten its coming. It's right in the middle of communion when in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, Paul writes, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And it's in, it's in the liturgy that you do every time you take communion. It's right in the middle of it. And the reason why we, I would argue that Jesus wanted us to live in awareness of it is right in the middle of that passage we read out, there was the warning 
understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready. Jesus anticipates that his disciples will live their lives with that as their future reference point. His second coming. That's the big thing that Jesus writes, figuratively speaking, in his diary. And if you look in your heart, just have a moment of being really honest. Is, is there any excitement about it? And I'm kind of anticipating that the answer is going to be no, okay? You, if you break out in thunderous applause, and, and I can't hold you back dancing at this point, then I'm prepared to admit that I'm wrong. But I think, when I look in my heart, there isn't much excitement about it. One of the most notable gifts that living in the, in the King of Faso particularly gave me was to witness a fellowship of people who were genuinely excited about the second coming in heaven. I mean, really excited. And they had a particular song where they would sing, the day is coming, the day is coming, when we will see him face to face, face to face. And the refrain was just to sing face to face. And they would dance and dance and dance and, and to sit. But for me, that was a spectator sport. I watched their enthusiasm, maybe a little bit rubbed off on me. Maybe it's the difference, if I may use a football analogy, even though we didn't win the final. Maybe it's the difference between being somebody, because you got into the final, a few more people got into watching the Euros, yeah, and tried to learn what the offside rule. My mum, my mum is 88, bless her, went and watched with my Auntie Jean, you know, and they watched a couple of football matches. It's the difference between that and a, and a, and a fan, you know, a real football fan who's, who's got their season ticket and know all their players. And, and for me, I watched these believers be incredibly invested and excited about something. And I was a tourist in their midst. And I'd like to suggest that that might be your experience too. And at the same time, also suggest that that Bukinabe church, when they danced, were closer to the heart of Jesus on this than I am. There's no point in being guilty. Guilt is unproductive. So let's not do that, right? Can we just be real for a moment that we are not, the North Star of our future projections probably is not the second coming of Jesus, and yet Jesus wants it to be. He wants us to live our future lives with that as our reference point. And I wonder if we've got to collectively find a way to be excited about it. I'd like to give you that as a challenge. What could possibly be your way in to living your life? I'm just going to read that piece of verse again. Looking forward to the day of God and hastening its coming. What would it look like? What motivation would you find in you for that to become real? A characteristic of this particular time that we're living through is that we're all in this together, yeah? We're actually ironically very separated and split up and apart, but we're actually all suffering something at the same time, yeah? And I think probably collectively we've actually longed for something, yeah? That we've actually had a shared sense 
of really wanting something to happen, to change, a day to come, a future-orientated longing that we all share. We've actually done something a bit like that. I'm going to suggest that maybe we could use that as a way in to say, how as a community of people can you genuinely long for Jesus' coming? Because if you want to be less worried about the future, and I do, I, would l I want to approach my future with confidence, then I think it's the key thing I've got to get right, is that I live my life with reference to that event. There's a quote, which I unfortunately have on my telephone, so I've just got to find that my phone works. There we go. This is John Piper. He said, The center of Christianity is the coming of the Son of God into the world as a real man to destroy the works of the devil and create a new people for his own glory. The very heart of our faith is that he did this by obeying the law of God, dying for the sins of his people, rising victorious over death, ascending to God's right hand with all his enemies under his feet. The second coming of Christ is the completion of his saving work. If you take it away, the whole fabric of his saving work unravels. Can I just do that last sentence again? The second coming of Christ is the completion of his saving work that we are to long for and look for and hasten and speed. And I really think, I didn't expect looking at how to rework my attitude tomorrow for me to, to find those two teachings. I didn't expect it to be linked to my attitude, my desire for status and wealth and security and the pride that I would feel in those things and yet I found it did and I didn't expect it to be focusing on the second coming I expected to spend more time in the love of God or the promises of God and I didn't but if we want the rigorous thing of being trained by our circumstances and receiving a harvest of righteousness I would like to ask us that we try to live up to those two challenges that um, Jesus has put before us. Amen.